So my title today is The Blood of the Lamb and I want to talk uh, about the blood of the Lamb of God, uh, Jesus. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, John the Baptist, who was the guy who heralded uh, Jesus 2,000 years ago, uh, the final prophet, uh, he gave Jesus the title Lamb of God. Uh, and I want to talk about the blood of Jesus spilt on this day 2,000 years ago, uh, on the first Good Friday, as Jesus was crucified, as we've heard already uh, in the reading from John's Gospel. Um, I want to talk about the blood of the Lamb of God, the blood of the Lamb today. And I'm going to read for us uh, from an Old Testament scripture. Uh, if you're following this in your Bibles, uh, turn to the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible, uh, the book of Exodus chapter 12. And I'm going to read for us beginning at verse 1. Exodus chapter 12, uh, beginning at verse 1. Just to give us a context to this, this is where the people of God are in slavery in Egypt and uh, Moses is raised up uh, and eventually leads the people of God out of captivity in Egypt and they begin their journey towards uh, the freedom of the promised land. Exodus 12 beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the 10th of this month, they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who should eat of it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with its head, legs and inner organs. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. On all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now I've just read uh, to you from Exodus chapter 12 of the very first Passover uh, that happened for the people of God 
as they were held in slavery in Egypt. And I, I read it today because I want this uh, historical story of the first Passover to inform and to illuminate the significance and meaning of what happened to Jesus when he was crucified 2000 years ago on a rubbish dump they called Golgotha outside of the city of Jerusalem. And I want to read it because I want us to catch not only the significance of what happened to Jesus on the cross, but I, I want it to just bring out to us the power of when Jesus' blood was spilt, Jesus the Lamb of God, the power and significance of that for us, not only for us who hear this today, but also where I'm going to take this at the end is as we pray for our church, for the land and for our nation. And uh, before we get into the passage, uh, I just want to sort of touch on a few questions about the crucifixion of Jesus and about the cross and just kind of cover them off a bit just before we jump into uh, this passage today. And, you know, when you get into um, the cross, uh, it's very hard to sort of theorise uh, about it when you really engage with the power of what happened. Um, but we'll, we'll come to that in a few moments. But, but some of the sort of common questions about, you know, the significance of the cross of Jesus, uh, I just want to touch on for a few moments. And uh, really, there's sort of four main questions that people often ask of me uh, and ask about the cross of Jesus. And the first is, you know, very simply, you know, why did Jesus have to go through the cross? And why couldn't God just forgive us without the horror and brutality of what Jesus went through 2,000 years ago. You know, why couldn't God just forgive us? Why couldn't he just forgive the world? You know, why couldn't he just forgive me? That's the sort of first area. Uh, the second area is, you know, weren't there lots of people crucified 2,000 years ago? You know, actually we do know that from reading our history about the time that Jesus was crucified so what, what really was unique or significant about what Jesus went through? Um, wasn't it just, you know, another crucifixion that took place during that time? The third um, sort of question is really around, you know, how can the death of one man, Jesus of Nazareth, how can the death of that man 2,000 years ago have such meaning for us you know, and everyone else who's put their trust and beliefs in Jesus Christ, how can that really, you know, have an effect for all of us and for the whole world? And, and the fourth area is really about, you know, why at the heart of Christian faith is there something which is so brutal and so vicious? You know, how can that be good right at the heart of a faith which supposedly is about love? So I just wanted to kind of cover off some of those questions before we jump into the Exodus passage. And I, I hope if you're uh, listening or watching this, that that's helpful for you. And re really, the first question is, you know, why God, couldn't God just forgive us straight up? You know, why does he need a sacrifice? Why does he need, you know, the endurance of, of such suffering in order to forgive us? And it's a, you know, it's a really good question. You know, particularly when you dig into how loving God really is, you know, why, why does he need, you know, that to have happened? 
And I think, you know, there are, there are a couple of obvious answers to that um, for many of us. But, but really, you know, justice burns in all of us. And really the, the answer for why there had to be a death and there had to be a sacrifice is really because justice is not only innate in every human person, but it's innate and a characteristic of the nature of God. But let me put it like this. If, um, let's take a car that we all really love, or maybe I just love, you know, can you imagine the finest Land Rover in mint condition, a Land Rover Defender, you know, of the old style shape, but in mint condition, you know, dark countryside green, perfect bodywork, you know, a, a, you know, supreme leather interior, and it's sat on your drive, and you're just thinking, that is the business. I'm going to get out on the land, and that's just going to look the business. And then one night, you're asleep in bed, and some punk comes along with a baseball bat, and he smashes up that Land Rover. And he goes crazy and he smashes in all the windows and he ruins the bodywork and he just destroys that car. What would you do? Well, you might say, I'm going to forgive that guy. But you're also going to let the police do their job, aren't you? And you're going to be like, that guy needs hunting down, he needs arresting, and he needs either to buy me a new one or he needs to seriously know the consequences for his actions. Well, maybe. I mean, some of us might just forgive that if we don't like Land Rovers. But also, put, let's put it another way. What if someone broke into our homes and did something extremely violent to a member of our family? Now, God might give us the grace to forgive the perpetrator of that crime. But I don't think many of us would stop the processes of justice from taking their full effect. Because innately in all of us is this recognition that justice just somehow achieves a level of equilibrium into the state of how life should be lived. This is, this is also why the system of anarchy just has never worked as a form of any society living well with one another. You know, in anarchy there's no rules, no boundaries, no justice, anyone can do whatever they like. But that's fine until you infringe on how the things that I want. Do you see what I mean? And so, you know, one of, the, one of the answers to why couldn't God just forgive us is because, think about this, if God was real, then that means that God was the creator of everything that exists. And if he really made everything that exists, then he probably has a few ideas about how everything that exists should work and should flow together in harmony. Well, we know that he does, and he did, and we can read about it in the scriptures. And you see, the thing is, when, when God's ways, which are given to us as a gift so that we might live harmoniously, not only in unison with him, but with one another, when we break those ways, then actually, you know, there has to be a way that we are restored into relationship, not only with one another, but also with God our Creator and our Lord. And so this is where we find the grace of God, even in the horror of the cross. Because God didn't find a sacrifice to be fulfilled by just anybody. He sent His Son. He sent Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God, who laid down his life and made that sacrifice for us that we simply have to respond to and receive from. And so when someone says, why, why can't God just forgive us? I say, do you know what? God has just forgiven us. But he's also done everything that's needed to establish an equilibrium, to fulfill the requirements of justice and the law so that that doesn't, it's not just meaningless, but actually he's fulfilled it through the gift and sacrifice of his own son. Now, we might say, well, what made the cross of Jesus unique and different to any of the other crucifixions that happened in Israel by the, the Roman ruling you know, uh, regime during that period? Well, there are some quite key differences between what happened to Jesus on the cross and just anybody who was crucified during that, peri during that period, sad and traumatic and horrific, though that must have been for any of them. The first is this, if Jesus was the son of God, then when he was crucified, that meant that God's own son, that God himself was being killed. And that means something, that God was killed at the hands of human beings. That's what makes Jesus' cross utterly different. The second thing is this, if, if Jesus was the son of God, then that means he was also the Messiah of Israel. He was the one who was gonna come from the Jews in order to be their Messiah. And that means not only did we kill God, but we killed the Messiah of God. The third thing that makes the cross of Jesus utterly different is that we find as we read the scriptures that the cross of Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament hints and prophecies about the Messiah's death. And so we find some of that, a couple of obvious passages would be Psalm 22, which Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, even quoted when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And those Jewish Hebrew listeners who heard him at the time, if you quoted an Old Testament psalm, they would know that you were quoting, even though you just used a line, the whole of the psalm. And if you read Psalm 22, it is, it is frightening how vividly that describes what Jesus went through when he hung on the cross. Isaiah 53 would be another example, a prophetic picture of the suffering of the servant of God, the Messiah of God on the cross. But interestingly, if you listen carefully to the reading we had earlier this morning from John's gospel in John 19, three times, John brings out the fact that what happened to Jesus, the tearing of his clothes, the words that he said, the, the, the drink that he was given whilst hanging on the cross were to fulfill Old Testament scripture. And so even the very acts that happened to Jesus, the events that happened to him, utterly fulfilled perfectly the prophecies about this in the Old Testament scripture, which is phenomenal in the, in the coherence of it, as well as being just very, very sobering in terms of the horror and brutality of it. But the, the, the fourth way that the cross of Jesus was utterly different to all of the other crucifixions was in the physical reaction 
in the environment around Jerusalem, and in fact through the whole world, when Jesus was crucified. Matthew picks this up in chapter 27, and you can read it in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verses 51 to 54. We read that when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the Jewish temple of worship was torn in two from the top, symbolising heaven, to the bottom, symbolising earth. At the very moment Jesus was, was giving up his last breath, the curtain just tore on its own in the temple. Secondly, the earth shook. And Matthew goes on to say there was an earthquake as well, but he also describes the earth shaking as Jesus died. So the whole earth is, is just moving and responding to the death of Jesus. Thirdly, it says that the sun disappeared. There was, there was darkness in the land when Jesus died. So think about this. You're in Israel in the middle of a hot day. It's three o'clock in the day. There would have been bright sunlight, you know, cascading over the land. And yet it was dark when Jesus died. Fourthly, rocks split open. Rocks split open. And again, this is distinguished from the earthquake. Rocks themselves split open as Jesus gave up his last breath. It says that there was a huge earthquake in the city of Jerusalem. It says that tombs of the dead were opened. And think about this for a minute. When they buried someone and made a tomb, in that culture 2,000 years ago, we're talking about a tomb being shut by a massive boulder that it would take several strong people to move. And when Jesus died, those rocks moved aside and the tombs opened. And it said when Jesus was resurrected that a whole load of people who'd been dead were found and witnessed walking around Jerusalem. But at this moment when Jesus died, tombs were flung open, rocks were flung aside, and the entrances to the tombs of a whole bunch of dead people in Jerusalem were suddenly opened up. <laughs> That's what makes Jesus' cross different. And it also said that the people watching this, watching Jesus being crucified, were terrified when Jesus gave up his last breath and died and all these physical phenomena occurred. It says the people were terrified. And do you know what reaction they had? Their reaction, recorded in Matthew's Gospel, it says that they said to themselves, in terror, truly, this was God's own Son. Truly, this was the Son of God, who, who we've just witnessed being killed and crucified. That's what makes, makes Jesus' cross utterly unique to any other crucifixion happening uh, in, in Jerusalem in those days. Fourthly, my goodness, at the heart of Christian faith, and, and you'll sometimes hear people, you know, who maybe are outside of Christianity saying this, like, why is there such a symbol of brutality and viciousness in a religion that isn't it meant to be, you know, a symbol of, you know, this religion is meant to be about love and loving our neighbours? Well, yes, I mean, this was also taken by some weird the theologians, you know, probably 10 or 15 years ago, and they talked about the cross they even use this phrase, being like cosmic child abuse. And I just want to say, you know, when you hear stuff like that, you've got to come back to the scriptures because that stuff is just crazy talk and it's unbiblical and it's just wrong. Because what you find in the testimony of scripture is there was no abuse taking place in any way. 
There was no force from God the Father being exerted on Jesus when he went to the cross. No, the scripture tells us that Jesus Christ chose himself to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. The only force and abuse and brutality being exerted was that over those who condemned Jesus to death, who demanded, as they chanted his name, crucify him, crucify him, they demanded his death. That was the force being exerted. And the, the military force being enacted after Pilate washed his hands and the Son of God and the Son of Man was condemned to death was that which was carried out by the military forces as they crucified Jesus. But Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus, he, he gave away his godlike substance and emptied himself and took on the nature of a servant and be, humbled himself and became obedient even unto death. He chose because he loved the world so much and the father chose to go through the agony of seeing his son ripped to pieces on the cross because the trinity in heaven looked at the earth and said, we have got to get this world back. We have got to do something so powerful and so profound that we want to recover the humanity. And so we are going to go. And, you know, just when I envisage this, I imagine the Father's grief in heaven at the state of the world and, and longing for the world to come back, but knowing that he's not going to force anyone because, because love really is about freely choosing. And the Father's grieving over the world and the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the living word himself, says to the Father, let me go, let me go. And so he is then incarnated and then 30 years later, he begins his ministry and it leads to the, the, to the, I don't know, the arrest, the betrayal, all of those things. And the father has to turn away at that moment because it's the only way that everything can be restored and reconciled. But the grief of the father and the son went through the only ransom that there could be. But he chose to do that and became obedient unto death. And if you read, if you listen to the narrative, once we get out of Gethsemane, where Jesus squared his destiny, destiny once we get out of Gethsemane, we see a peace coming on, on, on Jesus, even amidst the most awful of sufferings, as he chose in love to restore the whole of the human race. So don't, don't you tell me that this was abuse coming from God. This was the grief of the Father. This was the obedience of the Son to be, uh, to endure the cross that we might win humanity back. Right. Let me get back to the passage. I hope that's helpful. I just wanted to cover off a few of those questions before we get into uh, the passage here. Now, let me just um, kind of say what's happening and then we'll turn to some of these verses from Exodus chapter 12. Why am I picking this picture of the first Passover to talk about the cross of Jesus? Well, there's some obvious um, resonances, first of all. When Jesus gathered his disciples for the very last supper, what we know as the Lord's Supper, where Jesus in, in that room in Jerusalem met with his friends for the last time before he was going to be arrested and betrayed, that was actually as they celebrated and remembered the Passover meal. And so I want to return to the first Passover 
to see some of the connections and see them bring out for us even further the significance of what happened to Jesus on the cross. And I'm going to pick this up um, in chapter 12, pick it up at verse 5. And um, I'm just going to follow through some of these um, verses uh, for us now. And there are some differences, and I'll come on to this in a few moments. Uh, and some of the differences um, are because now we're reading this from the new covenant and not the old covenant. But we'll get into that a bit later. Um, but um, let's pick it up at verse 5. And, and the instructions for how the Passover is to be celebrated uh, and then preserved throughout all generations are uh, as such. Verse 5. Uh, or verse 4, find a lamb, divide it in proportion to those in your household. If you're in a small household or on your own, gather with others. Obviously, we can't in this strange lockdown period, um, but that's how they would have done it. Verse 5, select a lamb and your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old male, and you may take it from the sheep. It could be a lamb's sheep or it could be a goat's lamb. Take it from the sheep or the goat's. Think about this for a minute. The lamb is to be without blemish. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says that for our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, lived without sin through his life. He was without blemish. He was the lamb of God, just like one of these lambs, without blemish. 2 Corinthians 5 made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was without blemish. He could be the perfect sacrificial lamb that we could never be. And so therefore his sacrifice could be acceptable in terms of the principles of worship that have been laid down through, through generations through the Old Testament people of God. But check it out. You can choose a lamb from either the sheep or the goats. Check it out. Do you remember at the end of Matthew's gospel when Jesus very soberingly talks about there's going to come a day where all people will be divided into sheep and into goats. When there'll be a dividing line for those who've responded to Jesus Christ and those who refuse to. And the lamb is taken from both. It could be from sheep or from goats. Jesus represents every human person. He comes for and on behalf of the whole of humanity. But all of humanity have to respond to what Jesus has done. And come on, let's be sheep. Let's follow him. Let's respond to him. And let's never cast ourselves into the destiny of being those who may be goats and who turn away. Verse 6. Verse 6. You shall keep the Passover until you shall keep the lamb until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter the lamb at twilight. The whole assembled congregation shall sacrifice this lamb at twilight. Check it out. They're to make this sacrifice when the light has gone, when the light is fading from the day. Luke chapter three, uh, chapter 23 verse 44. It was about noon and darkness came over the land until three o'clock in the afternoon. And when the sun's light had failed, the curtain temple tore in two. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands 
I commend my spirit. Check out this. Jesus, the Lamb of God, gives up his breath when the light has faded from the land, when it's dark in the land, when it was twilight. I mean, it wasn't pitch dark, I presume, but there was no sunlight in the land. And look, that's when Jesus gives up his breath as the Lamb of God, the one who gave his life for us. Verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall take the lamb, they shall take the blood of the lamb, and they shall put it on the doorpost and on the lintel, which is the crossbeam across the, the doorway of a house. And look, verse 22, they shall take a, uh, if you skip on to verse 22, how they shall do this of chapter 12, they shall take a bunch of hyssop, they shall dip it in the blood that is uh, from the lamb, they shall touch the lintel, touch the top, and touch the two doorposts with the blood, and that's how they shall do it. That was from verse 22 of the same chapter, chapter 12. They shall take a bunch of hyssop, they shall touch the lintel first, the top piece, then each doorpost with the blood of the lamb. And this is how they are to take the blood of the lamb that's been sacrificed and put it on the doorway of their house. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in blood, touch the lintel, then the two doorposts. Now check this out. What they were to do is to take the blood of the sacrificed lamb, they were to touch it on the doorpost and on the lintel, and the, it, the, the reason they do that is it symbolizes the entrance of the house, and it symbolizes everything that goes on and is owned by and happens within the domain of that household. That's why they use the entrance of the house, the doorpost and the lintel. Everyone passes in as they go in, and everyone passes out as they come out. And everything that comes uh, to occur within that household happens through that threshold. And so therefore the, the blood is covering everything that happens within. Now check it out. What does this mean about this hyssop? Well, hyssop in the Old Testament is used for purifying purposes. So one example would be from Leviticus chapter 14. And it lays out in verses four to seven that you use hyssop in the cleansing of a leper. And so what would happen is the priest would take some hyssop, which is a Mediterranean uh, plant, which is used in cooking. It's also used for medicinal purposes. It's a kind of long plant and it has purple flowers when it's blooming and it's a long um, kind of plant and they dip it in the blood. And in Leviticus 14, it says you sprinkle it seven times on a leper and that's how you cleanse a leper. David knew what it meant to have a leprous heart, to have an unclean heart, because in Psalm 51 verse 7, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Now check it out. Guess where you find hyssop in the New Testament? One place where you find it in the New Testament. Guess where it is? At the cross in John 19. And do you remember, Jesus says, Jesus says at one point, moment, just before he dies, Jesus says, I'm thirsty. And so what happens is the soldiers standing by, they have a jar full of sour wine, a vinegar, vinegar type wine. And what, what do they take? They take a hyssop branch and they put a sponge on the end of the branch and they dip it in the wine 
and then they raise it to Jesus's mouth and Jesus drinks the sour wine from the hyssop branch uh, and then immediately after taking a drink he says in verse 30 he receives the wine and in verse 30 of chapter 19 Jesus says it is finished and he bows his head and he gives up his spirit and check out what's going on now the blood of the lamb has not been spilt at this moment but what's happening is the hyssop is still being involved, evoking what goes on in the Passover. And it touches, is raised to touch the one, Jesus, who is the gate for the sheep. He's already given himself that title in the gospel. He is the gate for the sheep. In John 14, he says, I'm the way, the truth and the life. What he's basically saying is, I'm the threshold, I'm the doorway, I'm the, I'm the doorpost and the lintel, and I'm the way that you pass through to come into everlasting life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so when they raise the hyssop, it's like he is the doorway through, by faith, we come under the blood of Jesus into the household of faith, into the family of God, into new life. We pass through, and that's what's going on. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> oh my goodness, thank you, Lord. And through his sprinkled blood, we are cleansed like the leper, we are purged like David in Psalm 51. We are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus and we come through him and he is the way by which we're cleansed, we're restored and we're saved. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Boom. I'm excited. And then let's return to, um, let's return to uh, Exodus 12 and let's return to this um, and verse 8. And the instructions are here. They shall eat, they are to eat the lamb that same night. And what happens if you read on? They're to eat every part of it. They're to consume every part of the lamb. Don't just eat until you're full and then leave some for the next day. You know, don't just have a roast lamb on Easter Sunday and then the leftovers will make a Rogan Josh on Easter Monday and enjoy it that day. No. You're to eat all of it that same day. You're to consume every single part of the lamb. Listen, my friends, wherever you're watching this or listening to this, you cannot add Jesus into your life. You consume every part of him. You take every part of it and you live your whole life in response. Not just a bit of it, every single part of it. Boom. Verse uh, nine. We don't eat it raw. And we don't boil it in water. We roast it over a fire. Look, even in this picture, we're seeing the fires of sacrifice, the burnt offerings being portrayed for us. You roast the lamb over a fire because it's an offering. Jesus Christ was the lamb of God, the offering. And let none of it, verse 10, remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning, you've got to burn because it's a sacrifice. And this is how you eat. This is how you eat. You eat ready, you eat loins girded, you eat shoes on, you eat with your staff at your hand and you eat hurriedly because you are to be ready. Because I tell you what, when you eat this Passover lamb, this is the very moment where God is going to step in and liberate from slavery, liberate from death and he's going to release the people of God. Now listen, when, when Jesus is proclaimed to you, as I'm proclaiming you now, when the sacrifice of Jesus is proclaimed to you, you've got to be ready in your heart. 
You've got to have your shoes on your feet to respond. You've got to get your staff ready to rise up and respond. And because, let me tell you, we have to respond to the sacrifice of Jesus. Don't wait another day. Don't be dull in your heart. Don't be slow and unresponsive. But respond today because he has set us free from slavery to sin and death. And he's made everything possible to liberate us into freedom of the glorious children of God. And so, my people, you've got to respond today and quickly and do it now. Be ready. Be active in your faith, in your hearts, and be ready. It is the Passover of the Lord, verse 11, verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, human beings and animals, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Verse 13, the blood shall be a sign. The blood on the doorpost on the lintel shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The blood of the sacrificial lamb was a sign that death would not come upon the people of God. It would only fall upon those who were not covered by the blood and that because they were covered by the blood, they were going to be released in freedom as the people of God. And, you know, just step back from this passage, even in Exodus, just for a moment, and look at, look at the narrative. You know, look at it in Exodus 12 as a type, looking forward to the new covenant, looking forward to Jesus, looking forward to the cross that happened 2,000 years ago for us. The people of God are in slavery, and God in his mercy works to liberate them and to release them from from captivity to begin their journey towards everlasting freedom. And the liberation occurs after the 10th plague. And what was the 10th plague? It was the death of the firstborn. And what happens at the cross 2,000 years ago for us outside Jerusalem is the firstborn of all creation. The Son of God, the firstborn of God is the one who was struck down and took death and took judgment on his shoulders for you and I and the whole human race. He was struck down so we could be released, so that we could be freed from spiritual captivity and begin our journey to everlasting freedom. Praise God because we can be freed by the covering of the blood of the Lamb. Now let me sketch out some of the implications for us because we're reading this and we're listening to this not in the Old Covenant, not in the Old Testament, not like the Hebrew people were in Exodus 12, but we're reading this post-Jesus, post what he's done for us on the cross, even if we're hearing this for the first time, even if we're making this real for us for the first time. So let me just sketch out some of the implications for us. In Exodus 12, Egypt and Pharaoh represent the power of sin and death that is in the world since the very first human beings, Adam and Eve, ever since. They represent spiritual sin and death. And so they are almost ruling over all of us. And listen, let's just be honest. You know, no one, however good we think that we may be, no one is ever the perfect human being. Let's just be honest with ourselves. I know there are some really wonderful people who live 
in West Sussex. You know, I know there's some really, really amazing people, but I'm telling you, I've never met anyone who's lived a perfect life and has never done damage either to themselves, either to somebody else or to God. Even if it's the tiniest bit, there I've never met a perfect human being because we all labour under this thing which is in us, which is the law of sin and death. And I tell you what, what happens in Exodus 12 is we see a type that God, of what happens in Jesus that God executes judgment on the slave master. In Exodus 12, he executes judgment on the nation of Egypt to show his love and his kindness and his mercy and his favour on the nation of Israel. But now when we read this, thinking about the cross of Jesus, God is executing judgment on the slave master, which is sin and death, and he executes judgment. You know, you can see this in Isaiah chapter 53. It says that in Isaiah 53 verse 5, it says that God laid on him, which is so obviously means Jesus. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. God laid on Jesus the stuff that we really do deserve. And it was all poured out on Jesus. But so that, so that all of us who by faith lay hold of what Jesus did can be free and can receive the benefits and blessings of what happened to Jesus because it didn't happen to us. So um, that's the, the, the next key difference between us and Exodus 12 is that in Exodus 12, God is showing his favoritism to the nation of Israel. He's showing that he loves the nation and he marks them out differently to other nations. And he does this. I mean, he didn't want to, you know, kill the firstborn in Egypt. And in the end, he had to use drastic means to get the people of God out of slavery into freedom. But he, he tried. He warned Pharaoh. He warned Egypt. He went to them again and again and again. He sent different means to say, listen, let my people go. And finally, the drastic means that the killing of the firstborn was not what God wanted, but he was showing his mercy to the whole nation of Israel. Now, listen, that is so drastically different in the new covenant post Jesus. It's so drastically different for, for a couple of reasons. The first is that, is that in the new covenant, we never see God inflicting judgment on any other nations. Why? Because he's executed judgment on sin and death finally, once for all, according to the book of Hebrews, on his own son, Jesus Christ. The punishment which was poured out on him is by which the whole world finds peace. John 3.16, the most famous verse in the whole of the Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but find eternal life. So God, I just want to say this, is not sending coronavirus. So please don't read the Passover as being get the blood of Jesus so that when God sends corona on the world, it won't hit any of us. No, the world is broken. The world is majestic in places. You know, look at any of the sunrises we've been having. They're, they're full of the glory of God and the beauty and majesty of our creator. But the world also is one where tsunamis happen and where there's disease. 
because the world is broken because of the presence of sin still in the world. But God has done something about that. And I talked about this two or three weeks ago, if you want to look at this. But I just want to say, God is not releasing coronavirus to get our attention. But the world is broken and so there is disease in this planet which we have to respond to. And in all these things, God is working and, he's, and he does want to get our attention. But he is not releasing death. No, it's very simple. There is a source of death and it's sin and the enemy. God is the author of life and freedom and joy because he executed judgment at the cross on Jesus once and for all. And the only other judgment that he's going to execute will be when Jesus returns and every single human being has to give an account of their lives. And I'm telling you what, he will return one day. No one knows when, but let's be ready. Let's be found in Jesus because there will be a final moment where history stops and I don't want to be stopped short and I don't want any of you to be stopped short from being found in Jesus because I don't want it ever to be too late for anybody. But we're in this tiny moment between the cross of Jesus and the return of Jesus and we have to respond to all that he's done. So Jesus on the cross has instituted a new Passover that's what was going on on Good Friday. That's why it happened during the celebration of the Passover 2,000 years ago. And that's why in the Last Supper with his friends, Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And that's why we can be confident that if we put our faith in the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself, that we can be set free from sin and from death and the power of the enemy. The fourth difference between Exodus 12 and the new covenant that we live in is that this becomes real for us by faith. And so, yeah, I wasn't standing in outside Jerusalem at Golgotha in that rubbish tip with all the stench of the other people who've been slain by the oppressive Roman regime during that period. I wasn't standing there 2,000 years ago because I wasn't born. But I can read about it and I can feel the reality of him by his spirit and I can respond by faith and I can say, yeah, do you know what? Probably I know what's in my heart and I probably would have been chanting crucify him, crucify him too because I know the fickleness and the the, the um, just deception that I've lived in so often in my life. But I can look at the events of what happened to Jesus. I can look that this was no ordinary person. This was the son of God and it was the son of man. And I can look up to him on the cross and I can say, yeah, truly this was the son of God. And by faith, I can say, thank you, Jesus, that when you laid down your life, you did it for me and for the whole human race. I just want to say thank you, Jesus. Let me give my life to you. Let me say thank you for forgiving my sins. Let me say thank you for healing my diseases. Let me say thank you for delivering my soul. Let me say thank you for what you did that I didn't have to do and now receive the gift of my life in response. But we'll get to that in a minute. But let me just ask the question, are you covered by the blood of the Lamb? Are you covered by the blood of the Lamb of God? Do you know Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God? Have you by faith 
lay hold of the cross, have you engaged in the cross of Jesus and said, thank you God that you sent your son and it wasn't me? Have you responded to that? Because come on, you have to do that today, 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 today. And are you covered by the blood of the lamb? But let me just sketch out the implications of what happened to the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, when his blood was shed on the cross 2,000 years ago. And let me just say, if, if we, if you and I, by faith, lay hold of the sacrifice of Jesus, let me sketch out for you the implications for you in your life when you, by faith, lay hold of the sacrifice of Jesus. Because this is how God the Father will see your life if you, by faith, say, come on, what you did on the cross, Jesus, I want to be covered by your blood in my life. I want to respond to that. I want to give my life in response to that. And this is what the Father will see. He will see, number one, that your sins are forgiven. Number one, your sins are forgiven. The sins you committed to uh, yesterday, the sins you committed this morning, the sins you're going to commit tomorrow, they are forgiven once and for all, for all of time, forever. Amen. It's so, so good. Your sins are forgiven. And number two, that means you are cleansed. You are cleaned from the inside out, from all unrighteousness, all uncleanness. You are cleansed from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 says that he has forgiven our sins and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Forgive me if I just spat. I'm so excited. <laughs> he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Number three, it means our conscience is purified. What does our conscience mean? Conscience mean? It means our emotional, internal person. It means our soul. It means the way that we think and we feel. The, our kind of intuitive person, our conscience is purified. Do you know why I know that? Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 says that he sprinkles and purifies our conscience by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I know it in my own life because I know that my mind used to be depressive by nature and it used to be tortured and wobbly all over the place. I'm telling you what, he has given me a sound mind by his grace and his power. Thank you, Lord. And I'm telling you what, in the cross of Jesus is a purified conscience. Never to be feel condemned, never to be insignificant, never to be fearful. He is purifying our conscience. And I just release that in the name of Jesus. Number four, the implications from how God sees this. At the cross of Jesus Christ, illness and disease are healed. Isaiah 53 verse 5 tells us that when... Uh, that he was crushed for our iniquities. The iniquity of us all was laid on him and by his stripes we are healed. Let me give you another verse from the New Testament. 1 Peter, the same Peter who betrayed Jesus and was restored by Jesus when he rose again. The same Peter who is one of the patriarchs of the church when it got going. Peter wrote in his letter, 1 Peter 2 verse, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24 says this, He, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross, come on, so that 
free from sin. We can be free from the power of sin. Free from sin, we might now live, not just have eternal life when we die, we might live free lives. We might live for righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. Let me hear you say, what tense does that come in? It doesn't come in that you will be healed one day. You may be healed if we pray properly. You may be healed if you go to the healing center. You may be healed if someone who's feeling pumped full of spiritual steroids comes and prays you. No, hang on a minute. This was sealed and established in the cross 2000 years ago when Jesus gave up his final breath, when he gave up his spirit to the Father. Do you know what happened? When the earth shook and the rocks were split open, your sins were forgiven and every single illness and disease which flows from the curse that's been on the earth because of the presence of sin and death was paid for and healed in that moment. By his wounds, his Jesus, you have been healed. Like, forgive me, like, I don't like shouty preachers, but I'm just like, I'm so excited. And my voice is breaking even now. I'm so excited. You've been healed. Receive it now in the name of Jesus. Receive it now in the name of Jesus. What has already been paid for, already been done, already been sealed at the cross 2,000 years ago. Number five. So, you know, sins forgiven, cleansed from unrighteousness, conscience purified, illness and disease healed. Oh my goodness. Number five. You are saved. You are rescued. You are saved from everlasting darkness. Eternal life begins now. I'll tell you what, it is flowing through my veins and it is flowing with fire. And I'll tell you what, it is flowing this side of heaven. And I'll tell you what, my physical body will wear out one day. But I'll tell you what, this eternal life which is pulsating in me and pulsating in you if you've received it by faith, this eternal life is just going to grow, go on and on and on. And when I die, I get a new resurrection body but I tell you what, the life that's within me now will just continue, continue, continue. Because I get to be with God forever and ever and ever. I get to be with him now and I get to be with him forever and ever. Let me tell you why. Because Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. I have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his marvellous light that belongs to the son that he loves. We have been transferred by faith in what happened on the cross from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom where life is murky and foggy and I don't know where I'm going. The kingdom of darkness into the kingdom where, boom, everything's crystal clear. The light of the world is at the centre of it. He's lighting up everything and I'm just looking around saying, I can't wait to get started. To be a releaser of his light in this world which sometimes seems so murky and foggy and dark. Boom, here we go. It's now in this life and it goes on forever and evermore. And finally, the wages of, oh no, not finally, because I've got two more. <laughs> Here we go. The wages of sin and death have been paid. That means that everything that was owed to God because of the just requirements of the law, they've been paid. They've been met in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 will tell you that We'll tell you that. And finally, do you know what happens? The final impact, or let me just run through these for those who like to be logical. Are you ready? Sins forgiven. Boom. Cleansed from unrighteousness. Boom. Conscience purified. Let me stop saying boom so it's not annoying. Ah. Illness and disease healed. 
salvation released, wages of sin and death are paid. And finally, the seventh thing that God sees when he looks at you and I, when we lay hold of the blood of the Lamb, do you know what God sees? He sees someone who is untouchable by the power of evil and death, untouchable by the power of the devil, untouchable by the power of the enemy of our souls. Let me sketch that out for us from Colossians chapter 3, verse 3. We are now hidden in Christ. Hidden in Christ. That means when the enemy of our souls, the personification of evil, prowls around, we are untouchable by him. And anything he might want to release, we are literally untouchable because our lives are hidden in Christ. Do you know how they're hidden? Do you know how they're hidden? Because they're covered by the blood of the Lamb of God. Do you know what? If the devil looks at your life, he can't even see what you look like. He can't even make out the appearance of your form because you are drenched in the blood of the Lamb of God. He can't even see if your hair is blonde or brown or ginger because you are just drenched in the blood of the Lamb. He can't even see you because all he can see is the Son of God who rose victorious and showed that the best that he could try is futile and fruitless when confronted with the power of what God did on the cross in Jerusalem that day. When according to Colossians, he exposed all of the principalities and disarmed all the powers and the rulers. And I'm telling you what, this is why it's so important to get our conscience purified. Because the only power the enemy has is in persuading us that he is strong And what God has done is really not that strong. That's the only power he has. And what happens is we take off the focus of the gaze of our faith and we put it on the intimidation, the fear, the anxiety, the the worry, the nervousness, whatever, that the enemy is seeking to pull our lives down by. But I tell you what, if we stay rooted in him, if we know that our lives are hidden in Christ, we're untouchable. Because the enemy is defeated and he only trades trades in lies and deception. We are untouchable by the power of the enemy. Death literally passes over us because death passed onto the Lamb of God 2,000 years ago. And what that means is it passes over our lives and we can be free. We are free. Hallelujah. So my question is, are you under the blood of the Lamb? Have you apprehended, have you laid hold of, have you accessed by faith the blood of the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself? Are you a Christian? Because if you're a Christian, what that means is you need to stand under the shadow of the cross of Jesus and you need to say, listen, thank you, Jesus Christ, you did something that I couldn't do. You did something so rich and powerful that I could never do. And because you did that, Your blood now comes over my life. And I say I'm sorry for the times I've lived apart from you. And I repent for the sins that I did. And I thank you that because of your mercy released at the cross, that you forgive me. You forgive me. And now this day I choose to lay hold of what you did. Listen, you just be praying this along with me. I just want to say right now, if you're listening to this and you're unsure, or you just are are wavering, or even you've just been apathetic and lazy, I'm telling you what, you pray this, you pray this. If there is ever a time to have assurance of our faith, today is the day. 
And I'm telling you what, if you're a Christian and you're not living in the fullness of what Jesus won for you that day in Jerusalem, in the putrid, beating down son of that agony of what he did on the cross, oh my goodness, let us lay hold of what he's done for us today. Let's let our sins be forgiven in our hearts. Let's let our conscience be cleansed and purified. Let's, come on, put away from this any sins that we may be engaging. Find the power of sin broken by what Jesus did on the cross. Let the wages of sin and death be paid for. Let us know in our hearts that we are untouchable by the power of the enemy, untouchable by disease. And I just want to proclaim that. If you, by faith, lay hold of the blood of the Lamb, I just want to prophesy into your life that you are protected from coronavirus. And I just want to extend the blood of the Lamb into that arena today. And I want to extend it because tomorrow... We are having a day of prayer and fasting. As our Chanterbury family, we are going to rise up in prayer and we are going to fast for three things. For healing, for deliverance and for salvation in the church, in the land and in the nation. And I'm telling you what, I am praying today. This is how we're going to pray from the blood of the Lamb. And we are just going to, do you know something? God loves it when we pray as the church for the land. For people who don't know how to pray themselves, God loves it. And so what I'm going to do today is just set us up to pray from the blood of the lamb over the church, over the land and over the nation. And say, come on, on our watch, let there be healing in every church and in our church. Let there be deliverance of soul and of mind in our church and in every church. Let there be salvation in our church and in every church. Let there be salvation in the land. Let there be salvation in the nation because of the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for you, for me, and for the whole human race on this day, Good Friday. And this is what we proclaim. This is what we own. This is what was done. And we say, thank you, Jesus. So pray with me now. Pray with me. I mean, if you're at home watching this in your home, stand to your feet even now. You pray with me now. Lord Jesus, we just want to say thank you for what you laid, you, that you laid down your life 2,000 years ago, that you endured the cross. Oh my word. Thank you, Jesus Christ, that you endured the cross, that you agonized, that you were brutally beaten that you endured the most horrible death, that we could be recipients of the benefits and blessings of what you released, sins forgiven, conscience cleansed. And we say, we're sorry, we repent of all our stuff and we run into your arms, Father, hidden in Christ. We lay hold of the blood of the Lamb, smeared over the doorway of our lives, smeared over the, the, the gate for the sheep, Jesus Christ. We run through him who is the way, the truth and the life. And we say we believe in what he did on the cross. We receive salvation. We receive deliverance for our souls, deliverance for our minds. We receive healing for our bodies. We receive protection by the blood of the lamb. And we receive it by the precious name of Jesus Christ. And everyone who believes in those prayers says together, Amen. <laughs>